0: Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell in High Water, my podcast for the recount with big ups to my pal Rizza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and producer of our dope theme music. About a year ago, our guest today announced that she was running for mayor of New York City and in June of this year, Democratic primary that she was running in took place and she fell short after running a strong and exciting campaign that enhanced her stature in almost every way ever since then, I have been trying, with all my might, to get this person to come on this show, come on some show, go somewhere, do something somewhere, to talk about her experience as a first-time candidate running in the incredible pressure cooker, flash incinerator, meat grinder, that is New York City politics. And she has resisted until today. Now, look, I would be happy hear this woman reflect on her experiences as a first-time candidate running for mayor of new york city pretty much anywhere but i'm especially delighted that she decided to choose this venue a venue she has been in before to do that for the first time you might have guessed already who it is i'm talking about it is my friend the one and only Maya wiley
1: the state of our union is in trouble because we are in disagreement about what truth is, what facts are, and whether or not this republic is one that's going to respect not just the rule of law, although that's critically important, but even the basic institutions of democracy.
0: Maya Wiley is, of course, a longtime progressive activist a civil rights lawyer, former chief legal advisor to Mayor Bill de Blasio, and a member of his senior cabinet, person who was the chair of the Civilian Complaint Review Board, the city agency that tries to provide independent oversight over the NYPD, someone you probably know also from her various appearances on MSNBC and NBC News as a legal analyst from 2018 to 2020 when she decided to leave that post to launch that aforementioned run for mayor. She is now trying to figure out what to do with her life going forward, and I'll tell you... little breaking news here. One of the most exciting things that she has settled on to do is to join us here at Recount Media as a member of our board of directors. Something that, along with getting her to talk about her experiences running for mayor, is another thing that I've been bugging her about for months, really even longer than that. I was like, Maya, it would be awesome if you became mayor of New York City. But if you don't become mayor of New York City, maybe you can come and help us out here at the Recount. And we are thrilled to Announce, I guess, here as much as anywhere, that in fact, Maya is joining our board of directors along with another powerful woman, Elizabeth Sammy. So we're thrilled to have her here. She's an incredibly powerful and important voice for a lot of values that this company cares a lot about inclusion and diversity and trying to figure out how to be a clear and accurate and fair window onto the world as it is today, not as it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago in America. We're thrilled to have her. We're not going to talk about that, though, on the podcast because we don't do self-promotion here for the company on this show, but we are going to talk about a bunch of other really important things. One of them is that mayoral race. Spent a fair amount of time talking about that. I wanted to know, you know, she's a first-time candidate. What did she love about it? What did she hate about it? What surprised her? And most importantly, what did she learn? She's also here to talk about the fragile state of American democracy and the ongoing threats posed to it by Donald Trump and the Republican Party, their continued propagation of the big lie about the election of 2020 and the plans that they are making and the moves that they are making in plain sight to stage potentially another coup, a more effective coup, unlike the one in 2020 that failed, teeing up another one if it happens to be necessary, if Trump wins again as the Republican nominee, but then falls short at the polls. They're teeing up coup 2.0. I want to talk about that with Maya Wiley because she's very focused on those threats to our democracy and what Donald Trump means for America as we go forward into the future, 2022, 2024. I also want to talk with Maya about another set of really important things, and that is what Democrats are doing about those threats. Are they doing enough? Are they doing too little? How are they fighting back? Whether they're fighting back in the proper ways. Whether Joe Biden is leading strongly, forthrightly, aggressively with enough focus on questions related to voting rights and lay down some barriers to what that lunatic Trump is trying to have in store for us potentially in the next election. And finally, another set of questions related to Democrats that have a lot of people in the party concerned, which is the increasing sense that among those in the most important most loyal, most energized part of the Democratic base, which is to say African-Americans, that there is growing frustration over the fact that the party and its leadership and its president aren't moving far enough or fast enough or delivering substantially enough given the historic debt that Joe Biden and the Democratic Party owe to that constituency. I want to know whether Maya senses that too and what Biden and Democrats might do about it. If they're not going to find themselves in deep shit in 2022 and 2024, it is a lot to talk about, but Maya Wiley as ever does it brilliantly here on the podcast. We have had very few repeat guests on this show, but Maya is one of them. And honestly, I would happily have this woman on the show like once a month. If she wasn't busy doing other things, she'd be a perpetual guest on the show. We have her on every week, just constantly. She could be maybe a co-host of the show. I don't think that's going to happen. Sorry to disappoint you, but maybe we can have her come back on with some frequency because when you hear her talk, you're like, okay, that is a great Helen Highwater guest. So we are thrilled and excited beyond measure to have Maya Wiley making her second, but not her last. I promise you not her last appearance on this goat rodeo shit show chamber of horrors known as Helen Highwater.
1: Now. Some will say, I don't sound like past mayors, or look like them, or think like them. And I say, yes, I don't. That is the point. I am not a conventional candidate. But changing it up isn't the risk. Electing the same kinds of people, bringing the same old broken promises over and over again, and expecting things will be different. That's the risk we can't afford right now.
0: And that was Maya Wiley. And this is Maya Wiley. That was a year ago, just about a a little over a year ago, October 7th, 2020. It's now October 16th as we tape this. So a little over a year ago, you took the plunge.
1: I jumped off the bridge.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I see you get a little misty-eyed there watching that.
1: Yeah, I could not help but get a little misty and a little choked up. Yeah, I saw it. And so many reasons for that. One is you know, that part of what called me into the race as someone who never in a million years thought I would run for public office. I mean, really could not have been farther from my to-do list (laughs) or anything I had to check off before I died. To end up in a place where here I was standing at the Brooklyn Museum with a press gaggle and a bunch of supporters was very much about question you asked me when we started, which is that we are in deep trouble. Yeah. And we can't get out of it if we keep doing everything the same way, if we are afraid to make change, if we're afraid to actually look at what's happening for people and figure out how government can and must deploy its resources and its tools to actually solve them. And at a time when Congress was so gridlocked <laughs> And has been right now. It's not even new, but also in so deeply troubled. It's cities that have to step up and do for its people and local governments. And there is so much power to do more than what is done because traditional politicians look for the least common denominator that keeps everyone happy. And that's not going to produce what we need to produce for our people. So it's a
0: good place to start just because, you know, full disclosure here. I remember having a conversation with you in the fall of 2019 because it was pre-COVID. When you you were like, "There's some people maybe may me want to run for mayor." Like, what do you think about that? And we had this chat about like, what would that do to my life? And did I think you would have a chance? And we had like a very nice personal but but strategic political conversation, just kind of like you know, what's this like? You've seen a lot of these races. What's going to happen to me? Kind of conversation. And you know, do you, you remember your, what you said to me? <laughs> I'm sure I don't. What's the thing you're thinking? I can remember a number of things I said. I remember thinking that I thought that the person who would be the most acceptable progressive to the New York Democratic establishment would have a very strong position in the race. And I thought you could be that. I remember saying that as a strategic and analytical thing. But I probably said some other personal things, too. What are you thinking of?
1: You did say that. And then I think you very rightly said you have choices about ways in which you could make impact. And I raise that because I thought that was one of the most important things that anyone said to me <laughs> in that process. Because I think for me, that was the whole question. Right? How do you make the most impact? Didn't have to be through public office.
0: You've been in and around public life and at the intersection of law and public policy and politics for a long time. Is it really the case that like you never were inclined to run for public office? I mean, it seems like you would have at least contemplated it through time because you're an obvious potential candidate.
1: It wasn't even on the list, but I'll tell you why I was born in Syracuse, New York, and then we lived on the Lower East Side in a Mitchell-Lama apartment because my parents were, you know, my father was an academic and they were activists, they were civil rights activists. And I think that is the central reason it was never on the list. Because I grew up in a movement family. I grew up in a family of organizers. It was the outside strategies to build power outside of government in order to get government to do what it was supposed to do or to do better and to do for black people, to do for low-income people. And that's the way I was raised. That's the movement I was raised in. I became a civil rights lawyer because that was a way to use additional tools both to support and advance the organizing to put another hammer in the toolbox of organizers to bring litigation to press elected officials to make some of those changes so i had always been the outsider insider right right? yeah yeah. and it wasn't until i worked inside city hall and i went inside city hall for all the reasons we've already talked about you know it's like. Local government has to start innovating if we're going to get federal government to do better. And here was having the first progressive mayor in 20 years, a real opportunity to actually create and implement programs that would do that, that would have impact in people's lives and that advocates having more access to government and having more ability to get bigger and bolder change. So, yeah, I was just never on the list for that reason. I always saw my talent, my role as being the outside agitator.
0: So you get in this race, and first-time candidate, what did you hate the most about being a candidate? What did you love the most about being a candidate? And what was the most surprising thing, this most unexpected element of being a candidate?
1: So the thing I hated the most was Zooms. (laughs) You know, let's face it, I think we all came to hate Zooms during COVID. But the first half of the campaign was constant zooms constant meetings whether it was community organizations or democratic clubs and even you know candidate forums and it was just awful because what i loved most about being a candidate frankly was the people right and like all things the real joy and energy and ideas and creativity that comes from people comes from the interaction with them and zoom is a terrible way (laughs) to have that interaction and so you know the best part was when the weather turned better and, you know, people were more confident about being outside, and we could actually have organizing rallies and meetings and other things and be in community where people were out and about and actually have interaction with real people right. in terms of what they were angry about, what they needed, what their experiences were. That was the best part.
0: Yeah. And you forgot the third one. Most surprising.
1: Oh, you know what I didn't expect, honestly? Because the truth is, I was so careful about investigating it. I had been prepared, thanks yes, to people yeah. like you. <laughs> I had been prepared with a lot of the expectation. You know, I had no way of knowing how it was going to feel to be told I wasn't who I was. Right. Sometimes by activists, some of whom I had done some work with, sometimes by the press, some people who I had known and had a good relationship with, and suddenly I was not who I was. Right. Not all the time, not in every setting, not with every person, not with every journalist. I don't mean that as a blanket, but I expected to be attacked. Yeah, right. <laughs> I didn't expect people who actually knew me or knew some of my work or had been aligned with some of the things I'd done to actually question who I was as a person. I have a blind spot, mm. and we all have them. Yep. I think there are times when I expected mischaracterization, intentional mischaracterizations. That I expected. Yeah. And that came, yeah. particularly from the New York Post. Right. But the piece of it that was truly the painful one was people, by virtue of making the decision to run. Is what changed. It, it's yeah. literally, there's so much distrust, yeah. even of non traditional candidates, you know, even of people who have not made a career yeah. and have not sought power in that way. There's so much distrust of power in ways I understand, but it becomes the mere decision makes you no longer the person you've been. And one of the things that I'm so grateful for, for the privilege of running, is the test. The personal test, which is, yeah. are you able to hold on to who you actually are and keep yourself and your campaign and your positions aligned with who that is, no matter what anyone else says or does? Yeah, That's the test. And it's a human test.
0: Barack Obama, famously in 2006, when he was thinking about getting in the race, said to David Axelrod early on and to his team, right as he was making the decision to get in, he said, Guys, the one thing that's going to happen in this race is I'm going to get mischaracterized. I'm going to get trashed. They're going to make me into a cartoon and a caricature. And that's the one thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to get through this race. I'm going to still be Barack Obama at the end of the race. Win or lose, I'm not going to let myself become made into some crazy caricature, even as people will try to do that. I'm going to hold on to what you all know about me now as we sit here in this little room where not that many people know who I am. I mean, obviously, a lot of people knew who he was already by then, but it's just like and he really I think one of the things that Obama's proudest of in his eight years in office is that he came out of the building with his sense that he he obviously got caricatured and, and maligned and and hyperbolized and and slandered and, and et cetera for eight years, but he felt like he got out and still had a sense of who he was from the day he decided to run. And I think if you if you still feel like you have that, that's an important first thing to have. You know, I said that thing before about how. That a progressive, genuine progressive candidate who also had the support of the New York establishment, so to speak, would have a very strong place in this race. You became the progressive candidate in the race. You know, if you look at the endorsements from. AOC and Elizabeth Warren, obviously, but also from a lot of progressive groups in the city and Hakeem Jeffries, who was also an establishment figure, you kind of put yourself in the best possible position. Did you feel like all of that got into the home stretch of this race, that it was all kind of coming together in the right way? Because that would have, I thought, been the strategic lane you wanted to occupy and you had kind of seized it.
1: I mean, I am a progressive. I wanted to own that lane. Not as the only progressive, but as we know, there were a lot of candidates in the race who were not progressive who were saying they were. There were some who were (laughs) legitimately. But it was both not only one of the progressives who had always been progressive, but who also had the ability to coalition build. And that has always been important to me. It was always central to you know, the strategy, whether it's civil rights movement, racial justice writ large, or or just making policy change is coalition, but not that sacrifices the values, principles, and impacts. You know, I had some supporters. I had some very wealthy supporters (laughs) from the private sector. I had some supporters who I would not take money from because they were real estate developers on principle, but they supported me. And I felt it all happening. I kept saying every time we'd have a press gaggle, you know, and I in, inevitably journalists would say something about how I was doing and wasn't it really bad or wasn't this too late or did not I not have enough of that? And I said, you know, intellectually, there's a lot of truth in the questions, right? The questions are valid questions. But there was something very hard to put in data yeah. that was happening. And it was all experiential. Right. And at one point I said to the gaggle, I was like, don't you feel it? Because people would come out if they, you know, we had a public calendar. I was one of the few candidates that put everything I was doing out in public on a public calendar. You know, if I was going to be on a street corner, uh, other candidates started doing it. But the point was people would come, (laughs) you know, they would come out and there was an energy and people would cry and then I would cry because there was something yeah. very emotional about what this all felt like. But it really did feel like something that was very beyond me, you know, not just about me. And that yeah. was extremely powerful. And I, I keep saying this over and over again, but it's so true. I mean, that I just feel so grateful for, really so grateful for.
0: Wow. It was, you know, I think it's a strange campaign because of the fact that so much of at the beginning you were all locked in. You know, I think some people lost their feel for the wind and weather of politics in that period where everyone was trying to read the wind and weather on Zoom, which you can't do because there is no wind and weather on Zoom. And that's a problem for those of us who go out and try to get a feel for things. And, And I think you started to feel it there. And the candidate often feels it. There was no doubt as you had kind of occupied the lane that you had. And there was upside potential and there was growth, and you could see it happening. There was always Eric Adams, right? And there was not a doubt that when we got to the end, for a variety of reasons, that he was going to be in the hunt, right? You guys had your share of clashes at the debates. I want to play one from the first debate, which was May 13th of this year. Let's play that.
1: Eric, 685,000 people, uh, 85% Black. 88% innocent. That's what stop and frisk was at its height that my former organization, the ACLU proclaimed a racist practice and won a court case on and just a year ago, you called it a great tool, uh, and have said that you used it. And I just want to know, because as a civil rights lawyer, all I can say is there was nothing okay about it. And it certainly was nothing more than lazy policing, certainly kept people's constitutional rights violated. How can New Yorkers trust you to protect us and to keep us safe from police misconduct? You know, thank thank you so much, Maya. And uh, every time you raise that question, it really just shows your failure of understanding uh, law enforcement.
0: So, like, I would say that that answer, I'll say this, kind of qualifies as <laughs> condescending, mansplaining. patronizing, mansplaining, mansplaining yeah. and copsplaining, yeah. right, all kind of rolled into one. And you guys had a lot of clashes over this issue, over police, over the course of the campaign.
1: Well, my favorite part you didn't play, John, which was my response, which was, I do understand police misconduct. I know. <laughs> yeah. But yes. Yeah. Well, well, thank I you. I figured i you the opportunity
0: to hear <laughs> live on the air rather than playing the tape. Look, you know, he won. It was a close, well, hard-fought race, but in the initial preference around, you know, he had a decent amount of distance between you and Kathy Garcia and others, right? These arguments got litigated and people in the city heard them and we ended up where we ended up. So just explain, like, what's the story you tell about why Eric Adams is the Democratic nominee for mayor and you're not?
1: Mm -hmm. Like all things, there are a whole bunch of factors in there. There's the fact that it was, you know, honestly, most New Yorkers were not turning their attention to the race till shortly before the election the primary election. And we were hearing that over. I had people on my team saying, you know, we're hearing from too many people that they didn't know that the primary was in June. Because remember, it was the first year that it was in June instead of September. And it was COVID. We'd been in COVID. You know, people were traumatized. People were unemployed. People were struggling with kids and, you know, and online learning. There were so many things happening. Uh, so there certainly was a core group of New Yorkers who were political junkies. And then there were all the folks trying to just survive. <laughs> So there are all these different factors. But really, if you really want to boil it down to the example on policing, which, you know, given the conditions of this city around poverty, around starvation, we had significantly more people going hungry, around facing evictions, we also saw a rise in violent crime, some of that hate crime, some of that literally related to trauma and mental illness, some of that related to the need to get money. But it became a debate around public safety, where fear, and I I don't say this in the sense of people being ignorant, because I think fear was real and for real reasons, but where we needed more time to actually have the conversation about what public safety is and means that was not afforded. In the time we had for this primary. If we had had a September primary, as we historically did, we would have had three more months of digging into this because there was no question, and I say this anecdotally, right, and in terms of those experiences on the street, where I had people stopping me, and I do mean in black community, I do mean in Harlem, I do mean in southeast Queens, saying, wow, I heard you on that debate. I heard that exchange, like the one you played, John, I was going to vote for Eric Adams number one. I'm now putting you number one. And it's one of the reasons why I was able, as someone who had never run before, to capture that vote at all was a big deal because Eric was also much more well-known. But he also had a powerful personal narrative around having been a police officer who did fight for reform. So I was trying to make sure people were paying attention not to his history, but to actually what he was saying he would do, which was at odds with that history. I want to ask
0: you about rank choice voting, just because obviously you know it was a huge experiment here in the city and a lot of people were really confused by it. And, you know, I'll I'll say for the record here, you know, in the initial preference, we had Eric Adams at thirty point seven percent, Maya at twenty-one point four, Catherine Garcia at nineteen point six, Andrew Yang at twelve point two, and then on down. And then, you know, a little while later we got the ranked choice numbers. And you had Adams at at 50.4 and and Catherine Garcia at 49.6. I would say there are just a lot of normal people who don't understand what the fuck that's all about and don't get it, don't understand it. I mean, they get the ranking thing, maybe, maybe they got it, understood it. I always thought, you know, that there should have been some much larger public education campaign to make people understand what this was all about before you implemented it. But you wrote about it in the Washington Post afterwards. And there were people who said, you know, if ranked choice voting hadn't happened, Maya Wiley might've been the nominee and she would have been able to consolidate a lot of those second choice votes for other progressive candidates, and she would have been the one who was able to triumph over Eric Adams. And you came out and said, no, ranked choice voting is good. It's good for women. It's good for non-white candidates. And I stand by it, even though maybe it would have benefited me. Do you think it would have benefited you, number one? And explain why you stand by it, even if you believe the first thing I just said.
1: Well So I will say there are many people on my campaign team who said the same thing. If we did not have ranked choice voting... You'd be in a runoff with Eric and you would beat him. I fundamentally am a small D Democrat, (laughs) as well as a big D Democrat, right? I believe deeply in creating the kinds of systems that advance our democracy. I didn't run for mayor because it was about me. I am a proponent, a fan and a booster of ranked choice voting because it's better for democracy. And you're right, John, and I co-chaired the campaign to bring ranked choice voting with a lot of other leaders right? because we knew it opened up the ability of people who had been barred from public office to hold public office. And we need that in our democracy. And it creates a way to have not just a winner-take-all if you don't get enough votes, (laughs) but really create more of a real winner, right, that has a cross-section of support. So all kinds of reasons why I support it. I can't tell you <laughs> how proud I am that I am a proponent of ranked choice voting. And being who I am, I care about the impacts. The impact here was that we had a pandemic. When we passed ranked choice voting, we didn't know we were going to have a pandemic. We have a very poorly run election system in the city that has to be transformed. There was not enough public education. We also had so many elected leaders fighting the change that interrupted even the process of trying to get to the public education because they were trying to stop it from happening at all. All legitimate fights to have. I'm just saying it was a perfect storm. But I have to stand by my principles and beliefs about what's better for our democracy. And I deeply believe ranked choice voting is a significantly better system. And in the long run, it's going to produce significantly better outcomes.
0: So we get to July and we have the painful Wiley concession speech, which includes in a perfectly predictably gracious way, you congratulate Eric Adams on his victory and talk about the fact that it's only the second time black New Yorker you said he was been elected mayor of the city. Of course, he hadn't quite. he become the Democratic nominee, but de facto. In, in
1: effect, we yes, knew that going to be mayor. <laughs> yes, of
0: course. Yes, we all understand that. But suddenly there's a huge unknown guardian angel vote out there that we don't know about for Curtis mm-hmm. Slua And I guess I ask you this, right? Since Adams won this race, he has been elevated and sanctified and hagiographized. And a lot of people, especially a lot of centrist pundits, I would say, have been like, that's the future of the Democratic Party. Like He has taken that mantle, boy. I mean, he is out there saying those things about himself, too. He goes on cable television. He goes out and sits with Bill Maher. He goes on a lot of places and basically says, there's a message here for National Democrats, which is that we have to be moderate. We have to be pro-police. We have to be this. We have to do that. I'm curious what you make of that and whether, despite your graciousness about his victory, whether you are concerned about whether he is the right Not just the right mayor for New York City, but the right exemplar of a certain kind of politics that people are going to maybe overread and that this is kind of maybe, I don't want to say dangerous, but misleading in some way.
1: Well, first, let me say, you know, I think time will answer that question Mm. and people will answer that question. Indeed. Uh, When you look at the results of the election itself, you know, he got a plurality of votes in a Democratic city. What that tells you is. No one who gets a plurality of votes in an election can lay claim to owning the right lane for an entire party. And I think that we're at a time, as we're seeing this in national politics too, the issue is what we're going to get done for people and how we're going to get done. I'm, I'm much more interested. I do believe it matters a lot, and I stick by what I said in my concession speech because I meant it. It actually matters deeply that a black man was elected mayor. To black people we have been a city that is mostly people of color and have only had one mayor of any hue that wasn't white and so much of the attack on ranked choice voting was that it would and eric uses language too and i thought it was dangerous and wrong that it was voter suppression no it's not but the very outcome demonstrated that that's not true and i think that's important to remember but the issue is whether it's in congress or at state level or at the level of a New York City is, are we going to actually get people housed? Are they going to actually be able to afford the rent? Is there going to be early childhood education? Are parents going to be able to work and still put food on the table? Or are they going to have to choose between eating and feeding their children or paying their rent? And what does it mean to be safe? Are people who are mentally ill going to be safe because we're actually going to have safe alternatives for them? Are people who are black and brown, who are being decimated by crime, going to actually feel safe calling the police? These are issues that have to do with the outcomes. I have a very different view of how we get there than Eric. The proof will be in the pudding. We need to come together as a city and get to those outcomes, and I'm going to be here for that. I'm going to both agree with Eric where I agree with him on how to get there. I'll disagree with him when I disagree with him about how to get there and push him, as I would anybody who was mayor. Disagreed with Mayor de Blasio, even though I worked for him. And I think that's what all of our jobs as residents are, whether it's in New York City or anywhere. And I think that this is a debate that we're going to be having across the country, not just in New York City. And, you know, it'll be Eric's opportunity to sh- show if he's right.
0: I don't like to ever try to eliminate in the nuance of Maya Wiley, but I will ask this question in a relatively like, just straightforward way. As you look forward to Eric Adams becoming mayor of New York City, do you greet that with enthusiasm largely or do you greet it more with skepticism, wariness and ambivalence?
1: I greet it with ambivalence and wariness, but it's because of the clip you played So I just want to be clear. It's not about Eric Adams as a human being. I actually like Eric. I've had good conversations with Eric. I appreciate that Eric is who he is. And I appreciate that about him and many things about him. He has an incredible, incredible personal story of what he's come through in life. And I think he deserves celebration for that. I am Not going to do anything but fight tooth and nail with anyone who wants to bring stop and frisk back, with anyone who thinks a solution to mental health crisis might be more police officers rather than more crisis intervention. You know, we just had in this city, uh, I worked hard with a whole bunch of different advocates as chair of the school diversity advisory group to really transform what we call gifted and talented education, which has been segregating our schools without delivering any accelerated learning, to say, let's come into the 21st century as a city. And Mayor de Blasio is finally implementing those recommendations. Eric has publicly come out and said he won't do it. So I'm gonna be wary about that. Now, I wanna see what else he proposes, right? right? I'm not going to prejudge until he says, how he is going to get to a better school system or a safer city where black and brown people are also safe and where people are getting what they need. But I am not hearing what I had hoped to hear. And I will continue to be a voice to raise the things I want to hear as a mother, as a resident and as someone who is not going away.
0: (laughs) Well, that's a good uh, transition to my last question before we take a break and switch topics here, which is, So my Wiley first-time candidate, never on the list. I was never going to run for office. And then, okay, I'm doing it, jumping into the deep end of the pool. And now we're sitting here and reflecting on, you know, what was good, what was bad, what you learned, what you saw, how you internalized it all. I'm curious about the future. You know, is it like oh, yeah, I got the bug now. I want to do that again. Not necessarily, I'm not look for a candidacy announcement here, but...
1: I am not running for governor of New York. I can tell you that, John. <laughs> I've heard rumors. It's not true.
0: Okay. Well, that's actually, that's a little breaking news headline there. Maya Wiley, not running for governor. What, do you think you would run
1: for public office again? Well, I will say two things. One, I have learned never to say never because I said I'd never run for public office, and then I did. I don't have any plans to run for public office. But I'm going to stick to what has always worked for me in making decisions about what I do. What has always worked for me and has led to a really incredible and wonderful career is that I've always been guided by where I think I can help make the change I want to see. Where I can do that, I will do it. You know, the mayor of the city of New York was a particular opportunity for me given what I care about and where I could see making some of that change. So I don't have any plans to run for public office again. Never say never, but it's not the way I think. I don't think in terms of should I run for public office again. I think in terms of where and how can I continue to be able to pull people together to make the demands that get something done that makes their lives better. And so one of those things is going back on MSNBC because while it's not all the ways in which I like to have impact, it's certainly is important to have a voice to weigh in and help people think about what they can do and how and how to think about what's going on in the world. And I'm going to continue to look for those kinds of opportunities to move the work.
0: I mean, I will say publicly here, Maya, something I've said to you privately already and that I deeply believe, which is that, you know, the ultimate test in some ways of every candidate and particularly candidates who come up short – and don't win the elections that they're running in, ultimately, you know, the real question is, at the end of it all, whether the person who's ran ends up with their stature and their public image and their influence in the world enhanced or diminished on the other side of their run. And, you know, I've seen a lot of candidates who go into a race and come out the other side and they look unrecognizable in the end and their stature is diminished and people think worse of them than when they started. You, obviously, are kind of the diametric opposite of that. You have come through this election, not victorious at the polls, but with your influence enhanced, your stature enhanced, your public image buffed up, and and with more people knowing you, more people thinking well of you, and I think in a position to make change That's far greater, even though you didn't get the big prize that you were seeking. I think that's incontrovertibly true. I don't run into anybody who says, oh, no, Maya Wiley, man, she got dinged up in that race. Quite the contrary. So I know you wouldn't say that about yourself, uh, so I'm going to say it for you. And you can just quietly sit there, smile, and blush a little bit. And uh, now, uh, (laughs) having embarrassed you in that way, we're going to take a break here on Helen High Water. And when we come back, we will talk about Donald Trump and if he really did plan to stage a coup in the 2020 election. Duh. (laughs) And if what he's trying to do right now is set the stage for another one, a more effective one, if he needs it in 2024. So let's listen to some ads and we'll come right back with my friend, Maya Wiley. And we are back with the second part of Hell and High Water today with my friend, now, newly joined Recount board member, Maya Wiley.
1: Excited to be on board.
0: And we are excited to have you. It's just such a thrill, and we're glad to have you here. Just the other day, you sent a note to me about something that you thought had not gotten enough coverage. So we're going to talk a little bit about it now as part of a larger theme related to what the fuck Donald Trump is doing. And to start things off, let's listen to Bill Maher talk about what he sees, which is what the hiding in plain sight, the slow motion coup 2.0. Here's the easiest three predictions in the world. Trump will run in 2024, he will get the Republican nomination, and whatever happens on election night, the next day he will announce that he won. I've been saying ever since he lost, he's like a shark that's not gone, just gone out to sea. But actually, he's been quietly eating people this whole time. And by eating people, I mean he's been methodically purging the Republican Party of anyone who voted for his impeachment or doesn't agree that he's the rightful leader of the Seven Kingdoms. (laughs) Yes, we're going to need a bigger boat. So that is Bill Maher. A couple weeks ago, basically saying, hey, look, it's really clear now there is no debate. Donald Trump tried to stage an auto coup between November 7th of 2020 and January 6th of 2021 to stay in power after having lost a free and fair election. And now, you know, there's we see there's all this stuff Mar is telling us pointing out vividly that Trump is doing and the Republican Party are doing right now around the country. We could talk at length about all of it, you know, purging the party of dissenters. Anybody who voted to impeach Trump, who was a Republican, is getting primary. The insistence that everyone swear fealty to the big lie, changing voting laws in the states, the audits, all of that shit. So, you know, we can talk about it. But I, I want to start just by asking, Maya, at the highest level, whether it's just now incontrovertibly the case that we are seeing a president who attempted to stage a coup and failed and is now trying to learn from his mistakes and find the weak links and strengthen them in some ways from his point of view to set the stage for a successful coup in 2024 if he runs for president again and falls short again.
1: Yes. (laughs) You know, look, I think never in my life— and I'm black in America. So, you know, it's not like I don't think bad stuff is going to happen to us.
0: Right. It's like I'm black in America. I've seen some shit.
1: I've seen some shit. You know, black people, we know stuff goes wrong and bad, even stuff that people think. But that's not who we are. And, you know, as black people say, oh, yeah, no, that. Yeah, that is who that is who this country is. (laughs) And frankly, has always been. But despite that, you know, Every time you think there's a floor beneath which no one will sink and then you have January 6th, right? And you're like, okay, yeah, there is no floor. And in this respect, I think what is so important to understand is Donald Trump, yes, to staging the coup. But the truth is the Republican Party has been building for this coup, not necessarily for Trump as its leader, But in practical terms, building towards this coup since 2008, because that is when, and even in 1980, when you had Paul Weyrich, conservative activist, saying, I don't want everyone to vote. Uh, And by, you know, after Obama's victory in 2008, doesn't matter what you think about Obama, whether you liked him or didn't like him, whether he was left enough or not right enough. The fact was... That was the moment that began the organizing that was making it hard for Black people, for the elderly, for people who were young and 18 to vote because they were traditional Democratic voters and usually people of color. And for that decade, like 2010 and forward, the civil rights community, racial justice community, has been raising the alarm bells, flying the flag, this yellow flag saying, yo, you know, hello. 2006, almost every Republican voted for the Voting Rights Act to be reauthorized. 2006, that's gone. And it's been gone. And we've had Republicans say repeatedly that the way to win is by keeping people who won't vote for them from voting rather than to contest for their votes. So when we fast forward to where we are now, it's not, Trump was just like Nixon perfected the Southern strategy of using racism at wink, wink, nod, nod without doing it explicitly. Donald Trump, you know, was supposed to be a Trojan horse and Donald Trump wasn't a Trojan horse. He just was the horse, right, that they rode in. (laughs) None of them liked him, but then finally they're stuck with him, right? This is what they've created. But I think it fundamentally goes back to the way this coup is orchestrated is by saying voter fraud, is by attacking what has for so long been something we all thought we could agree to, which is the peaceful transition of power as a result of an election. And, you know, I don't think there's any question that he has perfected that (laughs) that was started well before his election, but it is the strategy moving forward. The Republicans are now trapped by it and buying into it and doubling down on it for their own power and position. And I say that without regard to their policy positions, which I also don't agree with, but I'm just talking about pure raw power here. And so that is fundamentally what this coup is driven by and about. And I think if we don't start to recognize voting rights, voting rights, voting rights, we actually don't understand that this coup has been in the process for a long time.
0: Well, we're going to talk about voting rights a a little bit more and and what Democrats should do about it a little later in the podcast when I come back around to Joe Biden and the agenda in D.C. But I, I want to just stay here in this moment for a second. And I mentioned that you had flagged this story. And one particular thing you flagged was when the Eastman memo came out, you know, Trump had enlisted this lawyer to write a memo that was the memo that was try to persuade Mike Pence that there was some actual constitutional legitimacy to the notion that he could on January 6th reject the results of the electoral college reject the count and this is how you would do it and it was all laid out in that memo you look at that memo and then you look at the Senate Judiciary Committee's report about what was going on in the DOJ and in particular you know Trump trying to replace wanting to replace the acting attorney general Jeff Rosen with Jeffrey Clark who was a Trump stooge And, you know, Trump is quoted in the report saying, the one thing we know is you, Rosen, aren't going to do anything to overturn the election. And the only thing that stops this from happening is Trump eventually backs down when everybody threatens to resign in protest basically over it. So I ask you, you know, there are people who look at that and go, these are mostly conservatives who say things like this. Yeah, sure. There was an Eastman memo, but Pence did the right thing. And sure, Trump tried to engineer a coup inside the Department of Justice, but in the end, he backed down when good people stood up and threatened to resign in protest. What are you guys worried about? Like, presidents think about doing bad shit all the time. As long as he didn't actually, they weren't successful and didn't do them, just shows that the system held and that we should have confidence because the system held and good people will always prevail. I don't look at it quite that way, but I'm curious how you tell that history and what we should learn from it.
1: Yeah, I obviously disagree with that perception. That's like saying. Well, they only tried to rob the bank. They didn't actually succeed. So we shouldn't prosecute the attempted bank robbers for trying when they failed because the security guards did their job. (laughs) I mean, that is the logic. And why would we apply that logic to our democracy? We certainly wouldn't apply it in any other context. You know, it's Tim Snyder in his on tyranny who makes this point. But this really is the point. That it is the institutions of democracy that we need to protect. We have never seen, I am not aware of such a, other than Watergate, <laughs> right? I mean, I, don't, I won't say we've never had it, but something so clear, blatant, and with co-conspirators inside the Department of Justice saying, we will absolutely denigrate and wipe our feet on this institution for our own political ends. So the fact that it was a bridge too far from Pence, who, by the way, was still towing the line as much as he possibly could, the fact that there was a boundary doesn't mean he didn't cross others. And the fact that we have a Department of Justice where you're seeing both a president and minions, but including minions who are inside the institution to protect it, uh, who should be protecting and, by the way, whose jobs are not to represent the president and his person, yeah. but to represent the office and the people of this country. We should see that as nothing short of a bonfire. Yeah. <laughs> and if we allow it to become, it wasn't a riot on yeah. January yeah. 6th, yeah. it was a rally. Right. It wasn't that there was significant danger to the independence of our justice system And to the powers of a president who should have been impeached twice.
0: Convicted twice, yeah.
1: I was impeached twice. I mean, should have been convicted in each instance. But the failure to hold any form of accountability is permission to try it again.
0: Right. So here's a committee on Capitol Hill, the 1-6 committee is trying to, that's what they're there for, accountability, right? Get to the truth and accountability. And they they are moving along in their way. Some of us are very vigilantly feel like they're watching over them and trying to keep them on track and saying, guys, you know, you got to be tough. You can't slip here. You got to go yep. fast. You got to go hard to the hoop constantly, right? Yep. So this week, there were a bunch of subpoenas that had been sent out previously, but this week there were deadlines for people to show up. And people like Steve Bannon,
1: Mark Meadows,
0: Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff, you know, Cash Patel, uh, Dan Scavino, the social media maven for Trump, all these guys. It was like, are they going to appear or they're not going to appear? And Bannon becomes the focus. Right. And we got to the end of the week and Bannon, who's the one who's now not even negotiating with the committee, saying I'm not going to testify. The question was, are they going to seek a criminal referral? Are they going to ask for a criminal referral, ask the Justice Department to potentially file criminal contempt charges against Steve Bannon? Stephanie Murphy from the committee was one of many committee members out on television this week. This is what she said. I want to play this and we'll talk about it.
1: I know that there's a lot of chatter right now on Twitter and social media about how the committee isn't going to enforce our subpoenas. And let me tell you very clearly that that is not true. We intend to enforce our subpoenas and the first step will be for us to pursue criminal contempt. What that means is that the committee will put together a report and then um, refer it to the House floor. There will be a vote and then it goes to the Department of Justice. And I fully expect this Department of Justice to uphold and enforce that subpoena because I think this Department of Justice believes that nobody is above the law.
0: So let me tell you a couple things here. The first is that I talked to Adam Schiff on Tuesday morning and I asked him this question and he was pretty vague about whether they were going to do this or not. Tuesday afternoon, Rick Wilson puts a tweet out that says that's what she's talking about, which she says there's a lot of talk on Twitter. The committee internally freaks out because someone like Rick Wilson has a lot of reverb in the worlds that they care about. They scramble like crazy and decide, yeah, they're going to take this tough line. That's one thing. Is the committee really committed to this, or are they? Is this for show? That's a question. Another question in the Stephanie Murphy's thing. She's talking about how long it's going to take to get the answer here. We're going to refer it to the House floor. The floor House is going to vote, and then we're going to send it to the Justice Department. That's just for Steve Bannon. I got to say that as someone who is rooting for this committee to do its job and thinks it's the, literally the most important thing happening in Congress right now. It's October. I am just looking at these guys going. You guys are moving slow. You're doing all the right things for show, but this is not the kind of full court press with the hammer down and the accelerator on the floorboards that is going to be required if we're going to get to the bottom of all this in time before next November when it matters. That's a long little soliloquy on my part, but I ask you, as you look at what they're doing, where are you on this? Are you hopeful that they're on the right track? Or do you share with me some fears, concerns? skepticism, worries?
1: Well, I definitely have worries (laughs) and fears. I don't know enough about what's happening internally to get to skepticism. I will say, I mean, Benny Thompson is someone I know and respect, did a little work with when I was in Mississippi. I do think that there's no way this committee should have walked into this process not fully expecting and being prepared to aggressively enforce their subpoenas. If anything we know about Donald Trump and the Trumpies and, you know, his co-conspirators is that they're going to do everything in their power to stonewall Congress and the investigation, including, say, executive privilege, and we're not coming. There's never been a scenario in which there should have been any expectation of anything else other than what we're seeing. I think there's a legitimate question about how they should enforce, meaning I know that some folks have said... You know, to your point about your frustration, John, about the process, the process is actually baked into both the legislation and their rules in terms of going and writing in a report and then having to bring it for a vote and then take it to the speaker who then refers it. That's actually in the rules. That's the process they have to follow. So you could say it's a bad process, but they should be able to do that process quickly and swiftly. Others have said, well, just use inherent contempt where you don't have to go to the Department of Justice that you have, and Congress has, but not for the last 75 years, said, we're going to send the sergeant of arms after you. You know, politically, I'm sure there were some judgments made internally about which would be better um, and that it would be better politically to use the Department of Justice process. But all of that is to say that whatever happens, Republicans are going to say, this isn't a bipartisan report, it's not true. And the Democrats are gonna say, it is true. And here, so I think one of the things that I think the Democrats have got to address is there is going to be no agreement at the end of this process, no matter how aggressive they are. So they should be hell of aggressive so that in the court of public opinion, as many people as possible see as much detail as possible. That's fact driven and it's driven by the investigation and that that must happen. So in that respect, I do have some concerns. But I think that now they can't blink, right? particularly with what the public statements have been. They have to enforce these subpoenas.
0: So we go back to what Trump's doing out there, right? We've seen these laws passed, and they're not just voter suppression laws. They're also election subversion laws, right? Yes. The things that I think make a lot of people panicked right now is that like, if the control of what votes are counted, how votes are counted, what signatures are considered valid, how do recounts work, if all of that stuff in Georgia and many other states is now controlled by partisan Trumpists, as opposed to nonpartisan election officials, you know, that's a thing. It's like Trump's basically like, hey, if I had my stooges installed in, in Georgia, I would have found those eleven thousand votes, and I, you know, I would have been able to flip that thing. Instead, Brad Raffensperger, that bastard, stood up to me. So Trump's trying to fix that. Yep. you know, you got the audits, as I said, you got the purge, you got the primaries for any Republican who voted for the impeachment. You got all that stuff that Marley's out. Just in the last couple of weeks, we've had Republicans. Robert Kagan writes in the Washington Post: "Our constitutional crisis is already here." Last week, Michael Gerson, another Bush guy says the Trump nightmare looms again. These are Republicans. You know, Fiona Hill, famous Fiona Hill, puts a book out, comes out last week and says, if Donald Trump wins and Republicans control the Congress in 2024, democracy is dead. And we interviewed her for the circus. And she's like, if he wins, he will be winning on the basis of a lie. And therefore, like, we're fucked.
1: And the Republicans know it's a lie. Right, right. And are using the lie. So what,
0: given that these are the stakes... Like, we're all watching this happen. It's all in plain sight, you know, and it doesn't seem like anybody's doing anything about it that I can discern. And I'm looking around. I'm looking around. I don't see it. What do we do?
1: Democrats keep thinking that by behaving as if the world is normal, they can keep it normal when the Republicans are blowing everything up. And it's time for the Democrats to use every ounce of power that Democrats have, and it's the use of that power that's going to make the difference. And I am talking about, so everything you said, just as an example, is what we saw on Friday with this Biden commission on the Supreme Court. You know, reason that we're in the boat we're in, from partisan gerrymandering to Arizona being able to make it harder for people to vote is because of the Supreme Court. Which has already lost a lot of public legitimacy, the Democrats have the power to expand the court right. and add people to it. And by the way, that's lawful, it's constitutional, it is within Democratic power that they have as duly elected public leaders, and they are not using it. If the thing that has to happen is, we got to organize and work locally because, as we know, one of the reasons we're here is because Democrats, unlike Republicans, Democrats have not put enough resources, time and effort into state house elections, into local elections so that they actually have power and control over some of those mechanisms of voting, including deciding how district lines are drawn, but also making sure that powers like Making sure that we're using the majority we have right now to do as much as we can to make sure that the other branches of government, including the independence of the judiciary, stands and makes constitutionally based decisions on these kinds of questions. Right. It all matters, but I think part of what, you know, I heard embedded in your questions about the January 6th committee is the same writ large, which is use your damn power.
0: Well, that's actually a great spot for us to take a break. You know, the question of how to use what is the right use of the damn power the Democrats possess, because that's where I want to go in the third part of the podcast. Like, what are Democrats doing? What are they not doing? What should they be doing with the power that voters gave them in 2020? So let's take a quick break and we'll come back to that set of questions with my Wiley right here on Hell and High Water. And we are back for part three of our incredible, fantastic, fabulous conversation with Maya Wiley here on Hell and High Water. And to start this one off, a voice we haven't heard so far on the podcast. We've heard from Bill Maher. We've heard from Maya Wiley. We've heard even a little Eric Adams. But we haven't heard Joe Biden yet. So let's play Joe Biden giving, I will note, the one, the one big speech Joe Biden's given in his first year as president about an issue that seems maybe like it would be worth more than one speech. That's voting rights. Let's hear that speech right now. This year alone. 17 states have enacted, not just proposed, but enacted, 28 new laws to make it harder for Americans to vote, not to mention, and catch this, nearly 400 additional bills Republican members of the state legislatures are trying to pass. The 21st century Jim Crow assault is real. It's unrelenting we're gonna challenge it vigorously. July 13th, went to Philadelphia, gave that speech, laid it all out right there. 17 states, 28 new laws, 400 additional bills, 21st century Jim Crow, we're gonna challenge it vigorously. Every time I, I say, if all that's true, like, I don't know. I've covered a lot of presidents. Like I know what it's like when a president thinks something's existential. I've seen Barack Obama make the Affordable Care Act like the center of his universe for a year and talk about it every day from the podium on the campaign trail all over the place. Speeches, radio addresses, online everywhere. I've seen presidents, you know, when they elevate something, even the way Biden talks right now about reconciliation and talks about the infrastructure bills, talks about it all the time. I've seen presidents do that. You know, when Trump passed his tax cut, he talked about it every day. If this is like existential and it's the new Jim Crow, how can you give one speech about it in a year and claim to be doing it justice or being vigorously, we're going to challenge it vigorously? Well, really? I mean, come on. And every time I say this on television, I get Democrats all over me. Oh, he can't do it. The filibuster, blah, blah, blah. And I go, well, yeah, I mean, I get their structural impediments. and The Republicans are assholes about this, but like he's given one speech, he controls his own public schedule. Come on.
1: And it is the primary Message from Republicans to undermine democracy and the Democratic Party is by taking away voting rights. So it is absolutely existential. Yes. And it's something that the civil rights community and racial justice community has been complaining about every damn week. So it's not like there aren't people going, wait a minute, you admitted that you are a president because of black people. You're welcome. You have been clear. That voting rights is not just a racial justice issue, but certainly, and we've seen the Republicans use the race wedge also to convince people who are white that they shouldn't worry about the fact that they're making it harder for them to vote too, (laughs) but that ultimately it's about this democracy and must and should be job one. And this goes back to what we were talking about, John, when we were talking about the Supreme Court, use your power. So, yes, there are some things that are hard to do and win as president because of the Senate, because of the rules. I think you should end the filibuster. I think you have to take the courts back every way you can because that's a big part of this fight. I think you also have to make sure that you're fundraising, investing, not just praising, you know, black women who are doing the organizing right now in Virginia, Uh, or Georgia, or any of these other states where it is critically important that we start to make sure that everybody can vote and vote for a candidate that's going to stand up for democracy. It's job one. It's a job for the country as well as for communities of color, but that's what democracy is in this country. It's about deciding whether or not we're going to be one nation. Or whether or not we're just going to be going back to the civil war right and that's where we are right now and so i can't explain it i can only say that you're absolutely right
0: so ezra klein in the times writes this long piece about david shore mm-hmm. this data analyst right who has become very and has interesting things to say everybody in politics read this story yep. david shore has been getting increasing prominence over the last couple of years he has interesting things to say, not all of them I agree with, some of them I do, some of them I don't, but that's kind of beside the point. Start with this. His basic thesis is something that sounds like a lot like my Wiley. One of his thesis about what to do, which is end the filibuster, pass voting rights, give statehood to d c, give statehood to Puerto Rico, hack the Supreme Court. These are all like the structures of our democracy are built to inhibit the Democratic Party in a way that's unfair. And if Democrats are going to have any hope of having a sustained fair shot at being competitive, especially in the Senate, but he would say elsewhere, they need, must immediately embrace these structural reforms. Put aside the question of messaging yep. or policy, which he also has things to say about. Do you agree with that, that those kinds of structural reforms, you've said some of them, obviously you agree with, but the whole panoply of them. And if you agree with them, I do ask the question if you believe that those are important reforms to the future of democracy in addition to voting rights, why is no one talking about that in the Democratic Party? Why do we not even have discussions about it in Washington, D.C.?
1: So first off, I just want to say... It's important for the people of Puerto Rico and for residents of D.C. to say what they want, right? Because there is a debate (laughs) about is it statehood? Is it something else? But absolutely, they should be able to vote on how they want to be constituted in this country and those as options. The point, I think, is the Democrats should be doing everything in their legal and constitutionally conferred power to protect democracy and to ensure that people can participate in it so that we are still a republic. And this is what Democrats are afraid of. I think it's the thing that, and I say this as a lifelong Democrat, but it's the thing that I have always been frustrated about with the Democratic Party is the seeming fear of its own power. The Republicans have no fear of even using power that is not constitutionally conferred on them. Bully power. Why won't the Democrats say, you know, we have the power to end the filibuster, we're going to end the filibuster, or at least fight to end it? We've got the mansion issues and the cinnamon, as I call them, or man sin, depending on <laughs> who you are. But the point is pushing for every lever of power that enables them to protect the democratic practice of choosing leadership in this country is absolutely what they should be doing. And I do think that for Democrats, I don't believe this is an impediment, but it is the same thing that's wrapped up in the debate about what Shore has been saying is this fear of the diversity of viewpoint and the fear that, well, if we take too sharp a position on utilizing our power, we will alienate some group of people we want to attract to us. And bringing it full circle back to when I ran for mayor, and the proof point for me in that run was, you gotta run on the principles. You can't run with a fear about whose votes you will win or lose if you are sticking to those principles. And at the end of the day, that's actually what's gonna keep us all working to preserve our democracy, Otherwise, all we're doing is allowing a pass to those who are trying to pave the way for something that's very different from a democratic practice in this country.
0: I mean, the other piece of the shore analysis, right, that people focus on is a lot of things they focus on, they focus on the messaging thing. And he's a Marxist, right? This is not like a middle-of-the-road, tapioca centrist, like Bill Clinton, like third-way guy. He's a Marxist, right? He's like a Bernie Sanders hardcore dude. And his thing is like, if we talk about unpopular shit, you know, you look. At, he talks about Hillary Clinton. Says, you know, we talked a lot about immigration in 2016. That's why Trump won. And if we talk more about economics, we would have been in a better place. You know, left wing economics very popular actually. We can't talk about some of these issues. And his story about 2020, one of the stories he tells on the basis of data, revolves around defund the police and sort of says, look, there are a lot of conservative Hispanics out there who have been voting Democratic because they see themselves as part of the Democratic coalition. And when we talk about certain issues, and it turned out defund the police was one of them. You can tell this story about how the Democratic discourse elevating that issue turned off a bunch of conservative Hispanics who ended up voting more like conservative whites in the election. There are other people who have different reads of the data. It's complicated, right? We're seeing stuff that's complicated. The idea that like there's a coalition in the ascendants, and if they are non-white, they are going to vote Democratic, and that's reliable, and it's all good. Turns out it's not true. Turns out it's more complicated. And that turns out you know, America is a complicated place. And I guess I ask you whether... When you've heard this analysis, it ties back to Eric Adams a little bit. You know, given the complexity of what it takes in this country to be a national governing party, how do you weigh out the kinds of choices you need to make around what to emphasize, what not to emphasize? You kind of started to talk about it a second ago. And even to the use of language, I can think a lot of ways to pursue a lot of the goals of defund the police without calling it defund the police. You know, I'm curious about how you think about that. Mm -hmm. Not in the context of New York City politics, which is all a democratic game, but around this whole country and how we're on a knife's edge here in terms of partisan control.
1: Well, I will say just on the beginning of how you framed this question, a lot of Marxism got race completely wrong and created a false choice between race or class and economics. And to your point about complexity, it's much more complex than that. Yeah. And it's not an either or it's a both and. And the language does need to reflect that. And so the way I think about this is, how do we communicate what we're actually talking about doing in a way that is accessible, not dumbing down, but not falling into language that just becomes purely ideological? Ideologically, we can agree or disagree on any number of things, we often have an endpoint we can all agree to. And what we're really debating is, how can we get to that endpoint? And I think that we have different belief systems about what gets us there. But I find that if we're talking about the endpoint, people are safe in their communities. And safety means safe from crime and safe from police violence, which, by the way, is also a crime. (laughs) And that becomes a different conversation. So I think where I would say it is true that we sometimes in our politics across this country get so like, unless you use my words, you don't agree with me or you are not one of me. That's a problem for democracy because it really has to be about what are the problems we're trying to solve and how are we solving them? So what I used to say to folks, I don't tell people whether to use language defund or not defund because there are people who are using that language for a reason that's legitimate. I'm going to talk about what I think we're trying to get to and how I think we get there. And I think that's better for a democratic discussion.
0: I am not a political consultant, nor do I even play one on TV. But I will say that as you were talking a second ago, I had this little moment where I was like, if I had a candidate, I would be like, you know what? We are going to be the tough on crime candidate. And I'm going to go out and say, I want to get tough on crime. And that includes police violence yeah. and crime against citizens. Forget about defund. I'd be like, this is the tough on crime campaign. And that includes crimes committed by the members of the police. That's how we're going to do this. Yep. I want to play one more piece of sound for you because it's one of my favorite people really in America, who's making a point that I had been picking up anecdotally in our travels around the country and talking to friends in the African-American community and then seeing some data, uh, a little bit of data out there about this bubbling around. And then my friend, Killer Mike, Mike Render from Run the Jewels was on with our friend Bill Maher and said the following. So let's listen to Killer Mike.
1: Black community, I could tell you something. We were promised $45 million in college funds, 45 billion, we're getting two. We were promised better law enforcement, qualified immunity stands. We don't have a George Floyd Act. Um, we were also told that Corey Bush came out of um, Missouri and she said, we're not even in the infrastructure. But kill- so I understand we've made progress. But when you promise a people something, you have to deliver on some of the pro- when you And that means I want my president to succeed in his promises. But you have to make an earnest attempt at bringing the promise home or it's not just going to be the people in MAGA hats saying F you.
0: Not just going to be the people in the MAGA hats saying F you. I, <laughs> I, I just love watching that and seeing Uh, that my friend Mike Render didn't know if he could say fuck on Bill Maher's show. You know, you don't hear Mike Render say F you very often. (laughs) It's pretty funny. But look, he's making this broader point, Maya, which he made throughout his appearance on that show, which is that African-Americans in Atlanta, where he lives, are saying that Joe Biden has not done enough and has not tried hard enough to make good on the promises that he made to them in the 2020 election. The reasons they voted for him in the 2020 elections, the reason that they really were the instrumental to making him president in the 2020 election. They are like, Democrats, Joe Biden have not come through for us. And to your point a second ago, you know, when you said black people put Joe Biden in the White House, you know, you're welcome. That is the attitude that Killer Mike sees. in it. you know, in the Black Male Voter Project, put some numbers to this, did some some research and stood this up empirically. And, you know, people look at that research and as forecasters and Democrats and party strategists and yep. electeds are looking at the 2022 midterms. They're looming now just a little more than a year ahead of us. And you know, it's like, look, these midterms were going to be scary under any circumstances, right? The margins are narrow in the House and Senate. Historical trends are that the in-power party gets hit in the first midterm of a new president's term. All of that sort of would be scary enough on its own. But this is particularly scary because the dynamics here are you've got like the middle of the electorate mad at Biden because Republicans are hammering them with the message that he's a socialist. He's spending too much money and there's too much inflation and the prices are rising and and the economy's fucked. And then the Democratic base is like, you haven't done shit for me, buddy. And particularly, that seems to be the case with a lot of black voters, that there's like this rising sentiment out there. So I'm curious whether you hear that, Maya, in the African-American community and how big a problem do you think it is for this president?
1: It is going to be a problem if it remains this way. And the reason I say it that way is because there's still time, (laughs) but it's absolutely true that people are looking to see how hard is he fighting. Black people, I have to tell you, black people are very forgiving if you tried. Not unreasonable. Not going to say, okay, you tried and failed, so we're not going to vote for you even though you tried. It's really going to be, did we see you fight tooth and nail? We understand if you had two rogue Democrats who don't give a crap about our communities who jammed you. Now, I don't mean that winning doesn't matter. I just no, mean I it's not even only did you succeed, it's did you fight? One of the things that I think is happening right now with the Build It Back Better which is also probably a messaging problem, because I'd have focused on children and the fact that there were going to be huge investments in families being able to take care of their kids as a result of this, is that was the problem. It's because infrastructure wasn't going to help a lot of Black people, right? Yep. And it was those two things together that was going to deliver something. I do think there's still hope that there is going to be some form of deal where people are going to feel the benefits of that, including in black communities. So that will be something, whether it'll be enough, you know, time will tell. But he has got to come out, just as you're saying with Obama, he has got to come out swinging. He has got to come out swinging.
0: Well, we'll see. They get these bills done, you know, and they pass a trillion dollar infrastructure bill and a two and a half trillion dollar reconciliation social safety net bill. I mean, they will be able to stand up and say, these are the biggest bills ever passed in history. And guys, everybody's going to get a little bit of this gravy. okay? come on. Like, I know we couldn't give you quite what you all wanted, but this is a down payment. Like, we couldn't get it all done in this very tight thing. And we need more bigger majorities if we're going to give you the $7 trillion package, Mm -hmm. the $10 trillion package. You got to come out, you know, that could change the whole picture. But I got to say... There's just a lot of, especially on this voting rights thing and on some other things, there's just seems like sometimes there's just a little bit of lassitude and a lack of like focus and energy in the places that it should be spent.
1: Well, that's my point about coming out swinging, right? Yeah. It will be a big deal if there's a significant build it back better package with an infrastructure bill. It'll be a big deal. Big huge, deal. huge shot Huge in the Historic. To the, to, to the economy, to families. People will feel some difference in their lives. That matters. And he has to be seen as someone who is standing up on principle for what's right and fighting for it. And that's true of the Democrats, not just Joe Biden. And by the way, Kamala Harris, because I think the expectation was that we were going to see and feel the difference in the presidents of a black woman as vice president. And we're not.
0: Yeah. I have a last question for you. Here it comes. Every day that I am out in the world. somebody who's only tangentially connected to this horrible, preposterous thing that I cover, politics, (laughs) comes up and says, you know, man, the whole thing is so fucked. It's just everything. I can't believe How do you fucking spend all your time around those people thinking about that stuff, talking about that stuff? It's terrible. They're terrible. So dysfunctional. And then, you know, you get to some point where people are at the same time appreciating like climate change, the democracies under threat. Like they get that the challenge is huge. They get it's a big moment. The stakes are super high. And it actually increases their degree of frustration with how dysfunctional and how hard it is that the system is and how hard it is to make change. And they always end up asking, like, what can I do? And I'm always kind of like, you know, I said this after Trump got elected in 2016. I'm like, you guys just whining about this shit. There's stuff you could do. You can mobilize. you You can energize. You can build. You can vote. You can register people. There's stuff to do. I'm curious you about this, Maya, because obviously voting is like a really big thing, but it seems like it's an insufficient answer. And you've now been a candidate and you've now seen... What it's like to have different kinds of support, and you obviously have been in your career have been connected to social change, as we discussed. It had different, a lot of different pressure points. What do you say when people ask, beyond voting, what can I do to try to do something that will affect not just you know the local stuff obviously really important, but like the I feel like there's these giant crises that yep. I want to have some effect on. How do I get in that game? What do you say to people?
1: Well, figure out what game you're trying to get in. Right. Yeah. We have a climate crisis agenda because people got engaged. They got engaged in organizations in their states, you know, if there were young people in the Sunrise Movement, or it might have been the Sierra Club, I mean, but the point is they got engaged in places where they were organizing their demands and the ways in which people could show up. I call them mediating institutions, but the point is whether it's voting rights, whether it's childcare, there's a reason that childcare right now is a big national issue and parental leave. So the right has to attack Pete Buttigieg, but because people have been successfully fighting at state level and now at national level for parental leave. So the truth is, it always feels like we are powerless because our power is diffuse. But our power actually is very real when we come together with other people to exercise it. And that your point is, it isn't just elections. So I have someone calling me because there are gonna be protests across the country on evictions. And people are organizing these protests locally to fight for eviction moratorium, right? That actually does matter. Making homelessness and eviction an issue, whatever the issues are that most drive you, look for the organizations that are actually working on it And they all have ways to get involved and put your feet in the street when they need to be there.
0: Feet's in the streets and souls to the poles. Maya Wiley, she's a poet and she knows it. Um, It's (laughs) awesome. (laughs) It's awesome to see. It's amazing how delightful it can be to talk to someone about topics so dire. It's like, glad I was to talk to her about these topics, about how we're all going right down the shitter. But, you know, all right. You know,
1: but here's the thing, and I, I believe this to my core, the world ain't right but it's also not inevitably wrong. So we just have to keep fighting to make it right.
0: You know, we just end with that. Yes, true. Hashtag facts. <laughs> Fantastic to see you, and thank you for taking the time. It was an utter delight, as well, always.
1: The, the delight was mine, and thank you, John, for all you do.
0: Hell in High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Maya Wiley for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell in High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell in High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel Castro Rossell is our executive producer.